the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, Monday, Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Sam Moppin is engineering. Today I have a conversation with John, John Stadden. Enunciate John Stadden. He's the author of Science in an Age of Unreason. He's highly credentialed. We'll tell you all about that later, but he'll join us at the top of the second hour of today's program. So hope you'll uh, be able to stick around for that. We'll begin with uh, some of the day's news and some large questions that you might be pondering. Well, the Department of Homeland Security issued a bulletin this morning, and the bulletin warns of a heightened threat environment over the next several months as they monitor both risks of domestic terrorism and foreign adversaries looking to sow discord within the U.S. to promote acts of violence. That's a quote from their uh, bulletin. It goes on. The United States remains in a heightened threat environment, as noted in the previous bulletin, and several recent attacks have highlighted the dynamic and complex nature of the threat environment and their new bulletin from the National Terrorism Advisory System. Now, are they referring to parents attending uh, school board meetings? Well, no, not in this case. They went on. In the coming months, we expect the threat environment to become more dynamic as several high-profile events could be exploited to justify acts of violence against a range of possible targets. And they don't want to name, for example, uh, pro-abortion groups who have said this is going to be a summer of rage uh, and that they will be ungovernable. Um, They're not mentioning that specifically, but this is a general alert. The bulletin listed potential targets that include public gatherings, faith-based institutions, schools, racial and religious minorities, government facilities and personnel, U.S. critical infrastructure, the media and perceived ideological opponents. So pretty much everybody. Threat actors, I'm quoting from the bulletin, have recently mobilized to violence Uh, Due to factors such as personal grievances, reaction to current events and adherence to violent extremist ideologies, including racially and ethnically motivated or anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremism. Now, again, interestingly, they avoid naming one group in particular that says this is our purpose this summer. It will be a summer of rage. We will be ungovernable and we're going to make life miserable for everyone who disagrees with us. They're not mentioned in this lineup. Well, the department stressed that foreign adversaries, including terrorist organizations and nation state adversaries, also remain intent on exploiting the threat environment to promote or inspire violence, sow discord or undermine U.S. democratic institutions. Now, they may also be anticipating the J-9 hearing that's going to be televised, I should say produced by a Hollywood producer, essentially, I think that's coming up on Thursday. We continue to assess that the primary threat of mass casualty violence in the United States stems from lone offenders and small groups motivated by a range of ideological beliefs and or personal grievances, the bulletin said. Well, DHS pointed to several recent high profile events, which I don't need to review. We're all painfully aware of what's happened in recent days. The department said it's monitoring online um, 
forums uh, following the mass shootings of the elementary school Uvalde and in Buffalo. The bulletin noted how pro-Al-Qaeda and ISIS users online have celebrated the April subway mass shooting in Brooklyn and the uh, January hostage situation at a synagogue in Coleyville, Texas, carried out by a British national in an attempt to inspire U.S.-based individuals to engage in violent activity. The update from DHS uh, Tuesday reiterated from its previous bulletin that individuals both for and against abortion online have advocated for violence against government, religious and reproductive health care personnel and facilities in response to the high profile Supreme Court case. The decision is likely to be announced next week. Um, Four decisions, three or four were announced uh, this week. And I think people were very frustrated that among them was uh, uh, was not the the abortion decision, but that is expected to come in the next week or so, although it could stretch into July. So anyway, that's the bulletin. That's the forecast from the Department of Homeland Security uh, for men and women of faith who are praying, who are asking God to intervene or are praying for protection, for wisdom, for our leaders. This is perhaps less frightening because we have access to the throne of grace. We can bypass the legislature, the, the mayor, the governor, the president. We can go straight to the sovereign of the universe and ask for him uh, him to intervene. Um, so we're less fearful, or at least we should be less fearful. We don't know what the future holds or what might happen, but we know, do know the sovereign who oversees the affairs of men. So I hope in response to this bulletin and events we're witnessing all around the world, that that's our first go-to response, not wringing our hands, not despairing, but going to the one in whom we placed our trust. Well, one question that's being asked, where does Spygate go from here? Well, it came as little surprise, given the makeup of the Washington, D.C. jury, that John Durham failed to win a conviction against Michael Sussman for lying to the FBI. Interestingly, members of that jury had connections to to the Hillary campaign, had uh, connections to the attorney, to the uh, the effort to um, smear the the Trump campaign and so on. So it's really interesting how that jury was seated. But as constitutional law professor Jonathan Turley observed, with the exception of randomly selecting people out of the DNC headquarters, you could not come up with a worse jury, end quote. And as our um, as uh, Douglas Andrews asserted, a rigged jury from D.C. swamp assured that Hillary Clinton's lawyer wasn't about to receive a guilty verdict. He did not. So it was Durham's investigation all for naught. It would be tempting to conclude as much, though, to do so, it missed the important truths that the Durham uh, probe and the hearing uh, exposed, um, cementing the uh, reality that the bogus Russia collusion story was entirely weaved out of whole cloth by the Clinton campaign. And furthermore, the high officials in Obama's Justice Department were more than willing to play along with the plot they knew was a hoax from the very beginning. Now, will there be justice served? Will individuals responsible be held to account? Not very likely. I think this First case is an example of that, but at least we know something about what did happen. Well, Donald Trump's former director of national intelligence, John Radcliffe, noted that the verdict was not just uh, was not just rather. Yet he argued, I'm optimistic that not only will uh, Durham be successful in some of the ongoing prosecutions, but can expand the indictment that he wants to bring, given the involvement of certain FBI officials in spreading a false narrative to the American people. Durham's investigation has changed the narrative regarding Spygate. There's no longer talk of Russian collusion, but rather the focus has turned to the Clinton conspiracy. Now, I'd like to think that's the case, but many of the mainstream uh, media outlets just chose to look away until 
uh, the attorney was uh, found not guilty. And then suddenly they were interested. None of the details leading up to it, not the makeup of the jury, but just the uh, the verdict. So sadly, I doubt that uh, justice will be served or that individuals will be held accountable. But perhaps we're a bit more healthily skeptical moving forward. Healthily skeptical. I have to look that one up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour of today's program, a conversation with uh, Dr. John Stadden, author of Science in an Age of Unreason, the book released today, published by Regnery. That's coming up uh, the first segment of the second hour. We were just talking about Homeland Security, uh, suggesting that uh, we should anticipate a violent season ahead. They didn't put a parameter, a timeline on that. But uh, to just give you some indication of what might be expected, I noted that a pro-abortion group, Jane's Revenge, uh, has developed a reputation for resorting to violence. They claimed responsibility for an attack. Uh, on a pro-life Christian pregnancy center in Buffalo, New York. Now, I should mention the Pregnancy Resource Center here in Portland, one of them um, some weeks back, was also vandalized. But the pro-abortion terrorists firebombed that uh, Pregnancy Resource Center on Tuesday, inflicting significant damage on the building, vandalizing the remains with their organization's name. Well, again, the group is called Jane's Revenge. They've developed a reputation for resorting to violence. They claimed responsibility for the attack, perhaps a preview of the Summer of Rage. It left glass shattered. Much of the interior of the uh, Compass Care office burned and destroyed. The arsonist left graffiti on a wall that read, Jane was here. The organization has committed multiple such incidents in the last few months, including one in which it firebombed the headquarters of Wisconsin Family Action, a pro-life group in Madison, Wisconsin, last month. There's the uh, terrorist left the message, if abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either, end quote. Ironically, New York's governor not only ignored the violence, but instead airmarked $35 million in taxpayer funds to increase security at abortion clinics. Adding insult to injury, the New York legislature passed a bill investigating pro-life pregnancy centers precisely because they do not perform abortions. Well, Jane's Revenge also admitted that it uh, threw red paint on the front door of a crisis pregnancy center in Washington, D.C. last week, spray painting Jane Says Revenge on the side of the building. The string of rampages by the group comes after the surprise leak of the Supreme Court draft majority opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade, the 1973 landmark decision. So you have that kind of uh, vandalism that is kind of a wink at what's what's happening Meanwhile, pro-choice activists interrupted Pastor Joel Olstein's church service on Sunday in Houston, Texas, by taking off their clothes and shouting, my body, my choice. Now, the church um, is not particularly uh, politically active, but it just was a big church. They knew they'd get attention. My body, my expletive choice, they said. Um, it was the group Rise Up for Abortion Rights. They um, were heard shouting in the church as they took off their clothing, leaving um leaving on only their undergarments. Overturn Roe, expletive no, another activist screamed as the she removed her clothing. A total of three women took part in the protest by stripping down to their underthings in the church and shouting. The women were escorted out of the church, allowing Osteen to continue preaching, which garnered cheers and applause from the churchgoers. Outside, however, the activists continued their protest. They were joined by other supporters, uh, according to um, observers, the activists are part of Rise Up for Abortion Rights, 
which has condemned the possibility of the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade following a leaked draft decision last month. I know it seems very outrageous to do it in a church in a private space, said one activist of the protest. However, the people that are enforcing these laws have no qualms coming up to women in private spaces such as doctor's offices and medical clinics to harass them and call them murderers, end quote. Well, the video of the disruption has since gained thousands of views. A representative from the church didn't immediately respond to requests for comment, but did say Joel Olstein has an international audience and silence is uh, violence when it comes to things like these, referring to abortion, the activist said. We have a very unprecedented and very short amount of time to garner attention that we need to get millions of people on the streets, millions of people doing actions like we were today. So that may be what the health, uh, I should say Homeland Security was referring to, although um, these groups did not make the list of domestic terrorists. Well, pro-abortion, anti-women Politicians are targeting pregnancy centers. We could be living in a post-Roe America by the time you go on summer vacation based on the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion, which was egregious, with official decisions scheduled to be announced within the next, uh, well, few weeks. And while many Americans are preparing to better serve women facing unplanned pregnancies, in fact, I had the opportunity to join the Pathways Run for Life this weekend. What a tremendous work they're doing in Washougal. And what an encouragement it was to me. These are men and women who don't gain any financial benefit uh, from the work that Pathways does. They make it possible for anyone to come to Pathways uh, Clinic and get an ultrasound to find out if they're pregnant, to get the help that they need moving forward. Uh, They don't make the headlines for the good work they do. But nonetheless, they have been, uh, as so many pregnancy resource centers have been targeted, and their work may in fact change to some degree, if the Supreme Court does, in fact, overturn Roe versus Wade. But while many Americans are preparing to better serve women facing unplanned pregnancies like Pathways, radical pro-abortion politicians are focusing on making it more difficult for women to receive the care and support they deserve. The most recent example is in the city of Somerville, Massachusetts. It's a suburb of Boston that recently regulated pro-life pregnancy centers with an ordinance titled Deceptive Advertising Practices of Limited Services Pregnancy Centers. End quote. Well, the city council of Somerville is just the latest in a long list of pro-abortion legislative bodies that have attempted politically motivated regulations of pregnancy resource centers, including Maryland, Michigan, New York, Oregon, Texas, Virginia, Washington and West Virginia, along with municipalities and counties like Austin, Baltimore, Montgomery County, uh, Maryland. Well, the sponsor of the Somerville ordinance, city councilor at large, uh, Kristen Strezzo, revealed her radical pro-abortion ideology in an interview, the Tufts Daily, where she stated, I'm really upset that I still have to fight as hard as I do for reproductive justice. For whom? Reproductive justice for whom? And abortion access. Uh, she, her efforts could be described as anti-woman, as the very pro-life pregnancy centers that are now regulated in Somerville have been proven to do more than any other organization to meet the specific needs of women facing unintended pregnancies. But, of course, they are unwelcome if they choose to carry those children through the auspices of these pregnancy resource centers. More than 2,700 pro-life pregnancy centers located in all 50 states and Washington, D.C., provide millions of Americans with high-quality services, usually at no cost, totaling hundreds of millions of dollars worth of benefits to their communities every year. Clients of these centers report very high satisfaction rates, upwards of 97%. 
Life-affirming pregnancy centers have a long history, over 50 years, of serving women with compassionate care, enabling them to make a truly informed choice about their pregnancies. But those are not um, acknowledged uh, by the broader culture. But I want to take a moment and commend those here in the Portland metro area uh, in uh, within this listening audience. I mentioned Washougal, Washington with Pathways, Options 360 and in Southwest Washington, who are continuing to do the good work to fight the good fight on behalf of women who desperately need real choice and the compassion that they find at these pregnancy resource centers. I hope that you will pray for them, especially in the days ahead. They will be the target of more violence if, in fact, Roe versus Wade is overturned. These are not political organizations. They're not lobbying. They're not picketing. They're not advocating. They are supporting women who come to them in crisis uh, quite often. Uh, Pray for their safety. Pray that they would uh, prosper. And I'm not talking about financially benefiting. I'm talking about they would have access to serve more women as effectively as they have uh, in these uh, these days while Roe versus Wade has remained the law of the land. Well, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 2000, well, let's see, 204.5 times more babies were killed by abortion, the number of deaths by firearms of children ages 1 to 19 years old in 2019. In that year, there were 629,898 abortion deaths reported. I'm sorry, I have to just stop and think about that. 629,898 abortion deaths, each one a distinct individual created in God's image. Uh, And those are just those reported and 3,080 firearm deaths, the ratio 204.5 to one. That doesn't include abortion data from California, from Maryland and New Hampshire, which are not reported to the CDC. So that number is significantly higher. Firearm deaths in those states for people ages one to 19 were also excluded for comparison. These numbers from 47 states and the District of Columbia were collected from the CDC's wonder and WISQAR's online databases, which contain their information on deaths in the U.S. and a variety of data for epidemiological research. It's a staggering uh, number. We are rightly outraged at the deaths of children at the hands of firearms, most recently in Uvalde, but not limited to that one location, but have very little to say about those whose lives are taken in a clinic. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of the program, John Stadden, Science in an Age of Unreason. First segment in the second hour of today's program. Well, following the leak of Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade, The left unleashed a campaign of intimidation that including moving protests to justices' homes. They haven't been prosecuted for that, even though it's illegal. But liberal officials overseeing jurisdictions within more conservative states aren't taking any chances. They're promising that if left-wing intimidation campaigns fail to flip any votes on the Supreme Court, they're prepared to take an even more drastic step to protect abortion, simply refusing to enforce the law. The Wall Street Journal reports that Democratic district attorneys in Atlanta, New Orleans, Dallas, and San Francisco have vowed that they won't prosecute abortion providers or others, including those who assist a woman in obtaining the procedure. 
The refusal to enforce the law is also being echoed by state state attorneys general seeking re-election in Michigan and Wisconsin, as well as state AG candidates in Georgia and Arizona. This is nothing short of an assault on the rule of law. A new generation uh, planning another campaign of massive resistance against civil rights. Well, it's uh, it, it is true that prosecutors have always been granted some degree of leeway over the cases that they bring, given the need to prioritize the use of resources as well as special circumstances. But a more worrisome uh, recent trend has been to use this discretion in an overly broad way so that it uh, becomes an alternative means to making policy as president. Barack Obama helped popularize this approach when he couldn't get what he wanted out of Congress on health care and immigration. Instead, the administration simply said it would not enforce Obamacare's employer mandate when it feared backlash from business owners and it would not deport young illegal immigrants, the DACA policy. In recent years, we've also seen how politically motivated DAs who subscribe to uh, liberal bromides about Um, policing have simply decided to stop prosecuting certain crimes. Well, now we've reached the point where candidates who are running for law enforcement offices are making explicit pledges on which laws they will and won't decide to prosecute if elected. It's difficult to see how this uh, really squares with all the media rhetoric about Democrats being the only party interested in preserving norms. What's happening here is pretty clear for many decades Uh, When you couldn't get uh, what you wanted passed through the legislative process, you would turn to the courts. This is central to the sinister legacy of Roe. But now that uh, they're losing their stranglehold on the courts, they're turning to prosecutors to impose the policy preferences instead. Republican lawmakers who are preparing legislation for the possibility of Roe getting overturned need to take this reality into account. They should craft laws to make sure it will be too risky for any abortion provider to defy the law, it hopes, um, they will be bailed out by activist prosecutors uh, regarding. We don't need another candlelight vigil or another shallow moralistic homily. We need police and prosecutors to do their jobs. So says Kevin Williamson. And here's the ratio to keep in mind when thinking about guns and crime. One in 10,000. In 2018, the uh, misnamed Government Accountability Office performed an audit of the federal government's performance when it comes to prosecuting the easiest kind of gun crime cases. The crime that is committed when a a prohibited person attempts to purchase a firearm through a licensed firearms dealer, a process that requires submitting to a background check. It's a crime for a prohibited person to try to purchase a firearm in any circumstance, but... It uh, in practically all of these cases, the person trying to buy the firearm lies on the background check paperwork, which is called Form 4473. And that's a felony that can bring as much as 10 years in prison on the first offense and even more time when they're aggravating circumstances. In 2017, the year the GAO audited, there were 112,000 attempts by prohibited persons to buy a firearm that were stopped by background check system. That's 112,000 federal gun crimes in which the perpetrator signed his name on the form and therefore provided all the evidence needed to convict him. Shockingly, the federal government simply ignored about 100,000 of those cases, investigating only 12,700. To be clear, this isn't a mere paperwork crime we're talking about. According to the GAO, 36% of those 112,000 denied firearms were convicted felons. 30% were subjects of protective orders and 16% had been convicted of disqualifying domestic violence misdemeanors. These are the very people who should be our top priorities when it comes to fighting gun crime. 
In fact, the Department of Justice reports that about 30 percent of those who fail a background check are arrested in another criminal charge within five years. The point, enforce the gun laws we already have. Seems like a simple point to me, but apparently a difficult one to actually carry out. Well, in a case of crude reality, gas prices climbed five cents overnight as the president's pain at the pump crisis gets worse for Americans. Swanky Swalwell, the California Democrat Eric Swalwell's campaign, spent nearly $60,000 on travel expenses in six weeks, including a Miami hotspot and Paris hotel. It's got to be really tough to a campaign in Miami and Paris when you're running for office in California. Calling the DA murder friendly, a victim blasted the DA's response to a brutal hit and run caught on camera. Democratic Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon is doubling down on the light sentence handed down to a teen hit and run driver who mowed down a woman and her infant as the two were walking down a Venice side street last summer. And the victim is calling him out. Not doing too bad. A former Democrat senator says Biden saved the economy. While on MSNBC over the weekend, former Democrat Senator Doug Jones dismissed concerns about record high gas prices and inflation, saying the economy was really not doing too bad before calling on his party to take credit for the positives. MSNBC host Al Sharpton started by invoking polls which show most Americans disapprove of how President Biden has handled the economy and that it will be an issue that they take into the November elections. He asked his um, guest how his party should respond to these voters. Jones suggested voters could be swayed by more positive messaging on the economy and praised the president's response during the coronavirus pandemic. The White House says oil production will not be the focus of the president's conversations with Saudi Arabia. And of the one-party state, conservative commentator Dave Rubin says California will continue to lose residents if crime and taxation crises are not reversed at the ballot box. After failing to mention the historic day in any of his earlier remarks, President Biden late Monday tweeted about the 78th anniversary of D-Day. Apparently it was no big deal. Suggesting Congress make people care, an NBC News correspondent worries Democrats would have a difficult time making Americans pay attention to the January 6th hearings amid high gas prices, inflation and a baby formula shortage. Observing the uh, trend is super bad. Elon Musk slammed The Washington Post as the new paper newspaper grapples with infighting playing out in public. And Tucker Carlson says Peter Navarro's arrest is a huge step toward the politics of the third world, where the left uses the judicial system for political revenge. You may have heard Navarro was taken in a public place, handcuffed and perp walked uh, to uh, law enforcement. They knew precisely where he was at all times. He was in constant contact with him. But this was uh, done for purposes other than uh, their inability to reach him. Recruits market military recruitment is lagging since the pandemic, despite reduced targets and record incentives to boost interest. Ilya Shapiro has resigned Georgetown Law. National Review makes the point that uh, Professor Shapiro's reinstatement at Georgetown's law school may have been a victory for outside pressure against the forces of cancel culture. But it also sent an unambiguous signal to Georgetown that they would have caved to the mob and fired Shapiro if it was uh, at liberty to do so. 
Joe Biden has uh, enacted the Defense Production Act to waive tariffs on solar panels imported from China. The president waived tariffs on solar panels from four Southeast Asian nations for two years and invoked the Defense Production Act to spur solar panel manufacturing at home, the White House said on Monday, confirming a Reuters report. The tariff exemption applies to panels from Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand and Vietnam and will serve as a bridge while U.S. manufacturing ramps up. Katie Pavlich, however, points out, speaking to reporters from the briefing room Monday afternoon, White House Press Secretary Karen Jean-Pierre struggled to justify the president's invocation of the Defense Production Act to build solar panels. Given the DPA is reserved for times of war and true emergencies, Jean-Pierre's explanation shows Biden is using the extreme measures to push the climate change agenda and force transition away from oil and gas. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the top news stories coming up in the next hour. We'll talk with uh, Professor Dr. John Stadden, author of Science in an Age of Unreason. Well, Abbott is reopening its baby formula plant that is uh, pivotal to production. Abbott Nutrition is reopening that formula manufacturing facility in Sturgis, Michigan, after it was at the center of national attention as part of a baby formula shortage. In a press release on Saturday, Abbott Nutrition announced that it would open its plant in accordance with the provisions of a consent agreement reached by the company and the Food and Drug Administration. The company previously announced that they would be reopening the facility last week. The the facility, rather, was shut down in February. Americans are changing their lives to adjust for inflation. Well, yeah, duh. Nearly half, 42% of surveyed adults, are changing how they shop for groceries, including opting for cheaper items, avoiding brand names, and buying only the essentials. That's what the BMO Real Financial Progress Index uh, found, a quarterly survey. Uh, On grocery shopping, the survey found nearly half of women plan to adjust the way they shop for groceries at 47%, dine out at 49%, and for men, Um, 43%, 25% of women plan to cancel subscriptions versus 20% of men. Los Angeles DA George Gascon's recall petition has hit uh, half a million signatures. Recall organizers in L.A. County said Wednesday that they're um, heading down the the home stretch of a months-long campaign to force the exit of the district attorney uh, amid crime surges there. The recall campaign said it was collecting 500,000 signatures as of Monday, leaving them 67,000 more needed for registered voters by the 6th of July deadline. New York has passed stricter gun legislation. Politico reports the state raised the age Monday from 18 to 21 for people to be able to buy semi-automatic weapons and bolstered the reporting requirements of social media companies when they're alerted to credible threats of violence. The bills approved by the legislature last week make uh, threats of um, make up the most sweeping uh, package in the nation in the wake of the shooting deaths of 19 children and two teachers on the 24th of May at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, and the mass shooting a week earlier that killed 10 at the Buffalo supermarket in a racist attack there. This was a weekend of mass shootings. It's reported that at least 12 people were killed and more than three dozen others were injured in mass shootings in the United States over the weekend. As America continues to grapple with a gun violence epidemic, or at least a violent culture, that has uh, torn through communities big and small. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there were at least 10 mass shootings 
defined as an incident in which four or more people are shot or killed, not including the shooter, since Friday. At least three occurred during high school graduation parties. Mm. Universal preschool education could cost $350 billion. According to Wharton, we estimate that nationwide universal preschool education for three and four year olds will cost three hundred and fifty one billion dollars over the next 10 years, including forty one billion in twenty twenty two dollars in new facility construction costs over the first two years. This policy raises government debt by two point four one percent in the first two years. Twenty fifty three. Uh, the relative baseline suggests the same. GD- GDP in 2053 remains essentially unchanged as the negative effect, uh, effect rather of additional debt is offset with improved productivity from additional education and additional caregivers entering the labor market, they speculate. A pre-K program for just four-year-olds uh, four would cost $196 billion over the next 10 years, including new construction costs. This policy raises government debt by 1.42%. In 2053, relative to baseline and raises GDP by 0.03 percent. Prime Minister Boris Johnson survived the vote of no confidence. The UK prime minister has survived a vote uh, by his own lawmakers and amid increased dissatisfaction in his leadership. President Biden ignored the D-Day anniversary until late in the evening. Apparently, he was too busy issuing a gay pride proclamation and ordering military branches to issue absurd Pride Month virtue signals on social media. The biggest migrant caravan yet is headed to the U.S. border. Another huge caravan uh, headed to the southern border, and it's calling on Joe Biden to open it wider. He promised the Haitian community he will help them, a group of migrants stated. He will recall Title 42. He will help us have real asylum, according to recent reports. The current caravan working its way north, now through Mexico, numbers approximately 10,000 people. The majority of the migrants in the caravan are said to be to originate from Venezuela, Cuba and Nicaragua, while the administration has sought to end Donald Trump's uh, initiated Title 42 provision. As you know, the courts have uh, said that he cannot lift it at this time. What uh, would be required in order for that to change? Not yet clear. Elon Musk is threatening to kill the Twitter purchase deal. He continues to be at uh, loggerheads with Twitter as he seeks to purchase the social media company. On Monday, he warned that he may back out of the deal, claiming that Twitter has been actively resisting and thwarting his right to information on the company's numbers, the number of spam bots and fake accounts. This is a clear material breach of Twitter's obligations, stated a letter from the attorneys. The company currently claims that less than 5% of its users are fake. Musk has challenged that number, asserting that according to calculations done by his team, the number of bots and fake accounts is at least 20%. His obvious concern is avoiding uh, purchasing a company that ends up being a fifth to a quarter smaller than advertised. Meanwhile, the current execs at Twitter continue to refuse to disclose to Musk data and detailed information that would allow him to verify exactly how big this social media company is. As his attorneys point out, Mr. Musk believes Twitter is transparently refusing to comply with its obligations. There are primary contests to watch tonight, led by races in California, Iowa and Montana. Los Angeles and San Francisco voters may rebuke the left in the uh, primaries as well. Lots to uh, to watch. An ex-Proud Boys leader and other members have been uh, hit with sedition charges. A former ABC News president is helping the J6 community, uh, committee rather with the production of a primetime hearing. 
I didn't know congressional hearings had to be produced, but apparently this one will be. Elise Stefanik says the GOP is ready to provide counter programming, saying they painted a target on my back. Ilya Shapiro resigned from Georgetown Law School and the L.A. mom mowed down by a teen driver blasted the district attorney, George Gascon, over the offender's soft sentence. Pro-abortion vandals attacked Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center and the term unexplained doesn't appear too often in official government documents. Yet the reference is sprinkled throughout the Congressional Budget Office's latest budget and economic outlook to describe the recent strength in federal tax receipts that's blown away prior estimates. Individual income tax collections for the fiscal year ending September 30th are projected to land at their highest level as a share of the U.S. economy since the advent of the income tax in 1913. Overall, federal tax revenue this year is expected to hit 19.6 percent of gross domestic product, a figure that's been topped only three times, twice during World War II and again in 2000 before the dot-com bubble burst. It's not entirely unexplained. The CBO attributes much of the revenue growth this year and in the coming years to faster economic growth, higher wages and profits and capital gains realizations from elevated asset prices and, yes, higher inflation. On this day in history, 1769, Daniel Boone begins to explore present-day Kentucky. 1892, Homer Homer Plessy, a Creole of color, is arrested for refusing to leave a whites-only car in East Louisiana Railroad. Uh, Ruling on his case, the U.S. Supreme Court upholds separate but equal racial segregation, a concept it would renounce in 1952, excuse me, 1954. On this day in history, 1965, the U.S. Supreme Court in Griswold versus Connecticut strikes down seven to two, a Connecticut law used to prosecute a Planned Parenthood clinic in New Haven for providing contraceptives to married couples. 1993, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that religious groups could sometimes meet on school property after hours. Also in 1993, ground is broken for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. 1998, in a hate crime that stuns the nation, James Byrd Jr., a 49-year-old black man, is hooked by a chain to a pickup truck and dragged to his death in Jasper, Texas. Two white men would be sentenced to death. Lawrence Russell Brewer would be executed in 2011. John William King would be executed in 2019. A third defendant would receive life with the possibility of parole. 2002, a Norwalk, Connecticut Superior Court jury convicts Michael Shakel, nephew of the late Senator Robert Kennedy, in the 1975 murder of Martha Moxley, Shakel's 15-year-old neighbor, after four days of deliberations. Shakel's conviction would be vacated in 2018 by the Supreme Court in Connecticut, which ruled that his attorney had deprived him of a fair trial by failing to call an alibi witness. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, NASA announces the discovery of preserved organic material in an ancient lake bed on Mars by the Curiosity rover. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, a conversation with John Stadden. He is the author of Science in an Age of Unreason. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point in his latest book, Science is in Trouble. Real questions in desperate need of answers, especially those surrounding ethnicity, gender, climate change, and almost anything related to health and safety, are swiftly buckling to the fiery societal demands of what ought to be rather than what is. Well, these foregone conclusions may be comforting, but each capitulation to modernity's whims threatens the integrity of scientific inquiry. 
Can true fact-based discovery be redeemed? Well, legendary professor of psychology and biology, Dr. John Stadden, unveils the identity crisis affiliating today's science community and provides an actionable path to recovery in his new book, Science in an Age of Reason. Well, Dr. Stadden is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Professor of Biology Emeritus at Duke University. He obtained his B.S. at University College uh, London and his Ph.D. in Experimental Psychology at Harvard University, where he also did research at the MIT Systems Lab. He is the author of more than 200 research papers and nine books, including Scientific Method, How Science Works, Fails to Work or Pretends to Work. And he was profiled in the Wall Street Journal in January of 21 as a, a commentator on the current problems of science. He joins us today to talk about his latest, Science in an Age of Unreason, published by Regnery. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi. Uh, good, good to talk to you, Georgine. In the open of your book, you um, uh, state that science is about facts, but unfortunately, some facts arouse passion uh, and they should not. How did we get to the point where science is only relevant when it meets a particular narrative, but not so much if it doesn't confirm the position that I've already taken? Well, I mean, this is a human psychology problem, isn't it? People are just emotional. Uh, and if they hear a fact that they don't like, their instinct is to reject it and simply say, I don't want to hear that. I mean, there was an incident at Duke, for example, where a statistician, uh, came up with some stats about uh, African-American students and their, six, their grades in the first year compared to their senior year. And in the first year, there's quite a big gap between minority students and other students. And then by the senior year, that gap is much reduced, and that's good news, and that's just fine. But then these folks did a bit more statistical probing, and what they found is that the uh, African-American students had switched from uh, STEM courses, science, technology, and so on courses, into humanities and social sciences by the uh, last year. So the alternative interpretation was they should just switch to easier courses. And this may or may not be true. They were quite cautious in offering it as a possibility. But they were immediately denounced as racist. And that's, of course, terrible. It's absolutely terrible. It, it uh, impedes our understanding of what's going on in the university. Uh, and it intimidates people into not even reporting facts like this. So it's really, really very sad. Now, yeah, it's human psychology, but it's encouraged, I'm afraid, by uh, a lot of political movements that uh, the cancel culture, which you've heard of, I'm sure you know all about yes. that. Yeah, and it, the cancel culture simply exacerbates this trend. And uh, there are movements against it. There's an uh, organization called FIRE, which has just expanded its operations at call of Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And it's becoming a kind of new substitute ACLU. So the ACLU has kind of lost its way and is more of a social justice entity than a free speech entity anymore. But FIRE is trying to do something about that and three cheers for them. So is what you've just described the politicization of science the the fact that science is rendered irrelevant, that social science has become something else. What's the root of this? And is it a particularly contemporary problem or have we been moving in this direction for quite some time? Well, I think what I call the devolution of social science has been happening for a long time. And it happened with, uh, and this is again a bit inside baseball kind of thing, but if you, you know anything at all about science, you know that there are specialties. And in the 
origins of science in the 19th and 20th century, there were very few subdivisions and attempts to increase the subdivision of the British Association, British General Science uh, Association, attempts to increase the subdivision were strongly resisted. People thought this was really bad, it would impede criticism and so on and so on. Well, in the social sciences, it has absolutely progressed unimpeded. I give I give the history in the book where the American Psychological Association now has, I think it's 50-something divisions, the Sociological Association is a comparable number. There's like 100-plus subdivisions. Well, that's fine. Everybody's playing in their own puddles, or someone may think. But it has real implications. One is that each of these subdivisions has its own journal. And they all speak the same jargon. They criticize one another. If you don't like your division, you, it's not necessary for you to improve what you do, but you can switch to another one, which is more congenial. So it really cuts out serious criticism. And if, in fact, much of what's now called sociology was subjected to open criticism by scientists of all stripes, it, w- it would not survive. It simply would not survive. You're so right. Guy, to answer your question, it's been going on a long time. There's yeah. another matter I wanted to mention. I don't know if you're interested in pursuing it, but it's in the book because I know you are a faith person. Yes. Uh, I am not a Christian by profession, but I'm a great believer in the Judeo-Christian ethic and so on. And I believe that Christianity has gravely suffered over the last few decades. But one of the things I point out in the first chapter of the book is that a lot of the legal problems, a lot of the legal problems that religious people have uh, derive from a myth, and that myth is that secular humanists have no religion. In other words, they're immune from the kind of criticisms that are offered uh, for uh, religious people. The criticism runs, well, you believe, a humanist will say, you believe this because it says so in the Bible, and that's a bunch of myths which can't be proved scientifically. Our beliefs, they would say, derive from science. Well, they don't. As I point out, the book Science is Facts, and the secular humanists have just as many scientifically unprovable beliefs as do the religious people. And I think that uh, in cases like the one you mentioned yesterday, I was listening to your program yesterday, and the one about the coach who was clobbered for praying alone in the uh, midfield line. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's absurd that he should be penalized for that. Uh, I, I mean, another coach could come in, in the midline and chat, chat about the wonders of being transgender and nobody would say anything. So it's it's clearly a bias against the religious belief and religious folks ought to take account of that. I think you, you're absolutely right. I think the culture has certainly suffered from the redefinition, if you will, or the disregard for science, but the scientific uh, practice has suffered as a consequence uh, as well. What's the what's the result within uh, science itself of blurring the lines or um, rejecting the hard fact of science in favor of of something else? How is this impacting scientific inquiry? Well, I mean, it's particularly bad, as I say, in the social sciences, because the social sciences are very, very hard. Most of the questions you can ask about humanity are essential, uh, essentially impossible to settle by experiment. You can't put, you can't take a child and, and raise it in an environment A and another child raise it in environment B and then look at it 30 years later and say, well, this one worked and this one didn't, right? That's the kind of experiment you can do in most of biology and, and physical science. 
So you know, the problem is you're asking almost unanswerable questions. Mm. And I think the result is one of the results has been that methods have evolved. This is kind of, I, hope, I hope this is not too technical, but methods have evolved in, in social and biological medical, biomedical science, which seem to give clear answers, but really don't. And this is not a political issue. I think it's, it's a combination of the difficulty of the subject and the impossibility of getting clear answers, combined with incentives, very strong incentives for academic researchers who are, are in a profession. They're not vocational. They're, they're doing this as a job. The incentives are for them to crank out something publishable. And I don't know how many of your readers know about this, but there is, has been something in uh, uh, social and biomedical science called the replication crisis, which started uh, with a wonderful paper in 2005 by uh, a statistician who pointed out the title of his paper was something like Why Most Published Results Are False, which is a pretty clear cut, uh, pretty brave thing to put at the title of an academic paper. <laughs> but he showed that the standard, right, the standard method used in, in these uh, uh, examples that he gave. Uh, it's a statistical method invented by a guy called R.A. Fisher, a very bright British guy in the 20s, 1920s. And uh, this method is simply uh, inappropriate for the uses to which it's been put. Um, I don't know that you're probably broadly familiar with it. The idea is you have a control group which gets a placebo, mm -hmm. something which is made had no effect. And you compare it with an experimental group which gets a drug or something like that. And then you plug it into a standard statistic. And if your statistic, well, I say two things. One thing, that statistic is a model. It's a model as a testable, which should be accessible as the experiment itself. But often it's not. It's just taken standard. Everybody uses it, we'll use it. And then from that, that model, you get a result. And if you're lucky, which says that the result you got could only have occurred by chance 5% of the time or less. 5% of the time, okay? Well, it doesn't take a great insight to see that means a substantial number of results, actually more than 5% for arguments I can't go into here, will turn out to be false. Uh, another way to look at it, this is basically a one-armed bandit. It makes your experimental <laughs> procedure a one-armed bandit. The more you pull it, the more likely you are to win. And it, that, that is the incentive under which a lot of academic scientists work. They want to win. They want to get a significant result that they can then publish. So I think the method is bad as it's been used, but the incentives are, are the reason. <laughs> so you're rewarded for the number of published papers and so on that you get. Well, you want a method that gives results. And this does give, it doesn't give truth. Uh, but it gives it gives results. Gives a result, and yeah, so yeah. <laughs> We're gonna take I a. Mean, I mean, one of the one of the great things, one of the important things about science. You read any history of science, not recent history of science, which is a bit problematic. But if you read history of science, you see that most great discover, discoveries came at the end of a long line of failures. It's trial and error, and it's mostly error. But the modern system, as it's currently applied, is very intolerant of error. Which is, mm. to say, which is to say, it's 
and tell her the science. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to continue our conversation in a moment. Just wanted to uh, read a brief quote from the chapter, Are We Losing Our Way? Repeated failure is not compatible with career advancement, and science is now, for most scientists, a career, not a vocation. Failures are essential to scientific advance, but they do not play well with peer review committees. And ambitious scientists cannot afford to fail. Once again, we're uh, talking with Dr. John Stadden, his uh, latest book, Science in an Age of Unreason. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. John Stadden. His latest book, Science in an Age of Unreason, he covers a variety of topics and all of the things that you've been thinking about as they relate to science and beyond. Uh, some of the contemporary issues that have um, maddened and frustrated many, race and ethnic studies, uh, systematic racism, what do racial disparities really mean, um, and, and much, much more social science, carbon dioxide, climate change, and so on. Uh, the book is, uh, I think, a must read. Uh, it may take you some time to get through it, but it offers some very important uh, information about what we're seeing and how we get from where we are to where uh, science needs to be moving forward. Uh, I want to talk to you about some of the contemporary issues that I mentioned a moment ago that I think puzzle a lot of our listeners, climate change being one of them, issues around race and so-called science being another. Let's start with uh, with climate change. Later in the program today, I'm going to talk about uh, a, a businessman who raised a question about climate change and was sent to essentially a re-education camp. We're being told the science is settled. Is uh, climate change really a looming catastrophe? Is it being handled in a scientific manner, or is this a narrative that has been politicized or a combination of, of both? Well, I think it's a combination. I mean, they are honest climate scientists, but there's a famous uh, scientist called Freeman Dyson. Uh, he was at Princeton. He could have got Nobel Prize, but they don't give, give Nobel Prizes to more than, I think, three people or something. And he had discovered something which won a Nobel Prize. Very bright guy. And years ago, he became suspicious of climate science, not because of the details, but because of the emotion associated with it. So if anybody criticized it, they would get a hostile response. And this, this is not a normal, this is not a normal reaction to a settled result in science. If somebody comes along and says the earth is flat, he's not attacked, he simply ignores. <laughs> and so this is, this is suspicious. And I had a similar reaction. I have a friend who is very interested in this topic. He's an engineering physicist. And the two of us got together and wrote paper about all of this. And subsequently, I expanded it in the book, uh, uh, the uh, role of carbon dioxide in, in climate change. Anyway, we sent this paper to three people, two well-known climate scientists, and a third person was a colleague in the local environment school at Duke. And I knew him. I saw him committees with him and so on, perfectly amicable relationships. And he wrote back a very hostile letter, basically saying, stay in your lane. You know, you're not a climate scientist. What can you know? And of course, that's an anti-science attitude. Mm -hmm. I mean, almost anything from relativity on down can be explained so an educated person can understand the argument. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Richard Feynman, who's a brilliant, brilliant physicist, a wonderful lecturer. I recommend everybody to go look at his videos. Uh, he, he wrote a book called QED, which stands for Quantum Electrodynamics, not something that trips off the tongue of the <laughs> average person. 
right? I mean, a very complicated subject. And it's a brilliant little book so that even, oh, I won't say any idiot, but I say anyone. <laughs> so even I can understand it, essentially. <laughs> well, any many with rudimentary scientific understanding can understand it and respect what's being done. And that's basically what we try to do with climate science. I mean, neither of us is an expert. We both are reasonably well-educated. My friend Peter is, knows a lot of physics and engineering. I did a lot of biology and so on. And we put together, uh, we went through the literature and so forth and made sense of it. And we could not come to the conclusion that a cataclysm is around the corner. It's just impossible from the data. It's a very difficult question, admittedly, but it's simply alarmist to say that there's going to be a cataclysm. Another result that we and a lot of other people, there's something called the CO2 coalition that discusses this at length. We, we came to the conclusion that it's not necessarily the case that more CO2 is bad. I mean, one obvious effect of it is it grows more plants. Plants mm-hmm. like it, and the level now is not that high. It's actually quite low compared to its level in historical times, you know, millions of years ago and so on. So that part... Uh, uh, that the evil of CO2 seems at best questionable. The other part is CO2 driving uh, the climate. Well, that's more tricky, but the models that have been done are impossible. I mean, they involve you know millions of variables and so on. So they're just too complicated. They don't agree with one another. We don't know why they don't agree and so on. Uh, there are some simpler models called full physics models which try and explain planetary characteristics on all the planets which have atmospheres, you know, Venus, Earth, Mars, and so on. And they work tolerably well. They don't point to any cataclysm. But, you know, they are very, very simplified. Um, the other thing we could, could look at, and this, this is the easy one for people to understand, it's not, not rocket science, is is there a correlation historically that is going back hundreds of thousands or even millions of years is there a correlation between the carbon dioxide level and the planetary temperature? Now, stop me if I go on too long, but uh, obviously assessing, estimating planetary temperature back millions of years is tough. I mean, you have to infer it from indirect measures and so on. But part, over the past 700,000 years, I think it is, there's actually a very good correlation. There's actually a very good correlation between CO2 and temperature which supports the CO2 argument, except if you look at the details of the correlation, what you find is very often the temperature goes up and the CO2 concentration goes up about 800 years later. Now, even the most creative science scientist is unwilling to infer that a cause follows its effect, right? <laughs> That's rather unlikely. So. That's not always the case, but the point is that you can heat the earth and generate carbon dioxide, comes out of the ocean, water, warm water holds less gas, or uh, the carbon dioxide could cause the heating, and there's a mix of the two, but no matter how you uh, uh, look at it, we decided, it's not a cause, a catastrophe is not looming over the horizon. That was our conclusion. There is some warming, um, probably less than estimated, but it's not even certain that it's going to be that bad. Um, Shall I stop? Are you okay? Yeah, Yeah. but it raises the question, how free are scientists to investigate sensitive subjects or to question uh, scientific um, notions that are widely held but are, you know, should be subject to to questioning in the scientific method? Well, that's a very good question, and the answer is they're not flexible. uh, 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 
as our little uh, interaction with my colleagues shows, um, there's great resistance to uh, academic papers that present uh, something contrary to prevailing view. It's, it's, it's more in areas that have political significance like climate change. Um, if you send a paper on climate change to a climate journal, uh, it will be reviewed as these papers typically are. They'll be sent out to two or three anonymous reviewers. And on that basis, the editor will eventually publish it or not publish it after a lag of months. I and mean, it's a very inefficient system. I'll write a little bit about that also. Mm-hmm. So it will be very difficult. It'll be very difficult. Um, in a non-political area, it, it, not more than usual. The thing is that everybody refers to peer review as if it's kind of a biblical blessing <laughs> uh, cast you given given to these cases. And that's not, not true. Yeah, peer review is simply can it, it can do two things. It can find obvious mistakes and obvious errors of exposition unclear. The sentence is not clear, explain it, and so on. Or these data don't add up. It can find a few simple things. It can't reanalyze the data in most cases because it's, the raw data is not in the paper and it would take too long to reanalyze it anyway. Reviewers are not paid and they have limited time to work on it. So it can do kind of low-level vetting of the paper. The other thing it can do, which is in some ways more critical, is the consensus of the paper. Consensus of the paper. I mean, the competition to get a paper into Nature or Science, of the two big, which are the two big uh, journals, the competition to get into Nature and Science is horrendous, and the rejection rate is really, really high. I'm sorry for the background noise. There's a small <laughs> mammal here making a noise, um, and I think he, she can hear some of the stuff that's going on in the background. Um, anyway, uh, you. They, because the competition is so high for both publication and for money, for grant money, even a hint of disagreement can lead to rejection of your grant application or rejection of your paper. So that is a huge negative, a huge negative, and an imperfection in the current system. I talk in the book about, what, about some possible ways to modify this and so on, but it's, still, it's an ongoing debate. A lot of people are interested in it. Yeah, yeah. And my point here for the public is when somebody says it's peer-reviewed, yeah, right, you know. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> mean quite what one over. might think. Now, I need to take a quick break. Right. Can you stay with us for one more segment? Sure. Okay, just one moment. Uh, once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. John Stadden, his book, Science in an Age of Unreason. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Dr. John Stadden, who has graciously consented to uh, stay with us for a few more moments. His book is titled Science in an Age of Unreason, and he covers uh, such a broad swath of subjects that are, are worth reading in detail. And I apologize because a conversation like this doesn't do justice to the work that he has done, but we hope we'll at least whet your appetite and you'll consider the book published by Regnery Gateway, by the way. Uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Stadden, thank you so much for uh, for staying with us. wanted to ask you a couple of questions before our time runs out. Uh, how um, let me ask you about um, oh, it's the, the subject I'm looking at. How sound is social science, especially with regard to race and ethnic studies? As an African-American, I'm frustrated by much of what passes for scientific uh, discovery. I find some of it insulting and not very credible. How sound is the social science in this particular area? 
Well, a simple answer is it ain't sound. I mean, I uh, ran across the idea of systemic racism before it became a really a big thing and wrote a, a piece about it, kind of sat silent for a year or two. But my problem with it is I couldn't see how you could measure it. I mean, in, in social science, it's a basic idea called construct validity. If you come up with an idea, you have to be able to validate it. And I couldn't get any measurement that anybody had done uh, for systemic racism. Um, it's either assumed, you know, the New York Times, a lot of articles where people assume that, you know, yeah, the course is systemic racism. My colleagues in the university seem to assume that there's systemic racism. Uh, and the only bit of evidence for it is that there are racial disparities in uh, wealth and health and, you know, a lot of other things to do with economics. And that's given as an explanation for, uh, not as an explanation, but an example of systemic racism. But of course, there are many, many possible causes for this. Um, I mean, the wealth gap reflects all sorts of things. Systemic racism in the literal sense, that is, uh, laws in the system that we should discriminate against, uh, discriminate against black, are illegal. It hardly exists anymore. The only demonstrable example of systemic racism in that case is affirmative action, where black kids are indeed admitted with lower, lower scores and so on than white kids in many cases. And there are reasons for that. Oh, I'm sorry, my dog is really noisy. She's usually quiet. <laughs> um, yeah, there are reasons. There are reasons for that, which are you can, can argue, but it, uh, and there are of course contrary arguments. Equal opportunity is supposed to be the best way to proceed, and so on. So systemic racism re really rests on no foundation at all. Uh, unfortunately, it's been advocated quite successfully by people like Mr. Kendi, Professor Kendi, and this uh, lady. Um, what's her name? Um, blocking on the name, the uh, privileged lady. Um, and very successful. I mean, Kendi's book just takes it for granted that if there are disparities, then that's racist, which is nonsense. It, it, people differ. People differ in every dimension within the white population, within the black population, within the Asian population. And these differences are not, don't make these populations identical. They don't make people interchangeable and so on. So ignoring that, uh, allows you to come up with this idea of systemic racism. And I think it's really, really unfortunate. I mean, it's motivated a lot of people in bad ways. Uh, and the fact that it can't be um, it can't be measured just makes it stronger. Because if you could measure it, you could show it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> the fact yeah. Is, it's, yeah, I mean, the fact is, it looks as if, in what I call endogenous differences, like differences in people's abilities and interests, produce differences between groups. You know, some people are good at this, some people are good at that. And these differences are covered up and in, uh, the differences that result in their, in their life consequences, the differences that result are called the results of systemic racism. And so it blocks inquiry into what the real causes of these differences are. And some of them may be curable, I'm sure a lot of them are, but others may not be. And you're not ever going to get as many uh, women in uh, theoretical physics as in nursing, for example. I mean, it's just because the interests and, to some extent, the abilities are different. So what? I mean, that's, you know, vive la différence and all that. Yeah. These days, however, just raising the issue makes you a sexist or a racist, which is unfortunate. That leads to my final question. The facts of science seem to have been replaced by arguments of passion. 
How do we return to a facts-based science? Or is it possible, and are you optimistic? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think I've heard that one before. I'm um, really, really uncertain about it. I think the only way to return to it is to keep banging the drum. Science is about facts, guys. It's it's not about whether we have a social justice or environmental reform or whatever. It's about facts. That's when you encounter a fact. I mean, a student should be taught when you encounter a fact. Your first reaction must be: Is it true? Is it really a fact or not? Only then can you get alarmed or excited about it. And just keep saying it over and over again. Education seems to me to be be the really the only way to proceed. But, you know, I'm better at finding problems and fixing them, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, once again, the book is um, definitely worth reading, and I would encourage our listeners to do that. Science in an Age of Unreason. Professor uh, Stadden, thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us about it. And congratulations. I understand the book was released today. It was indeed. Thank you very much, Georgine, for allowing me to talk about it. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Again, Professor Dr. John Stadden, Science in an Age of Unreason. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I thought an appropriate follow-up to my conversation with Dr. John Stadden, Science in an Age of Unreason, uh, would be to share Stephen Moore's coverage on um, the uh, the notion that a 100% green energy plan uh, would save the planet, in which he suggests that the opposite may be true. And he writes that the untold story about green energy is that it can't possibly be scaled up to provide anywhere near the energy to replace fossil fuels, unless we're headed back to the Stone Ages, which is what some of the degrowth advocates actually favor. Well, right now, the United States gets about 70% of its energy from fossil fuels, 70%. To go to zero over the next 20 years would be economically catastrophic and cost tens of millions of jobs, with gas prices that nearly doubled their prices back from when uh, Donald Trump left office and inflation up uh, 1.5% to 8% in just 15 months, we're already experiencing the economic damage from the green energy crusaders trying to compress the timeline. Well, but we also have to ask whether green energy is even good for the environment. Now, the presumption is science tells us, at least the advocates of it say absolutely. Well, some environmentalists are pointing to a little-noticed study by the World Bank showing that moving toward 100% solar, wind, and electric battery energy would be just as destructive to the planet as fossil fuels. Now, let me repeat that because it's so outrageous, given what we're being told on a regular basis. Some environmentalists are pointing to the little-known study by the World Bank showing that moving toward 100% solar, wind, and electric battery energy would be just as destructive to the planet as fossil fuels. Well, this was precisely the conclusion of a story in Foreign Policy magazine, hardly a right-wing publication. Now, according to Foreign Policy analysis, moving to a carbon-free energy future requires massive amounts of energy, not to mention the extraction of minerals and metals at great environmental and social costs. Now, here are some of the numbers going all in on batteries, solar and wind would require 34 million metric tons of copper. 40 million tons of lead, 50 million tons of zinc, 162 million tons of aluminium. Okay, that's the British way of saying it. Aluminum. 4.8 billion tons of iron, 
Now, those tens of millions of windmills, solar panels, electric batteries for cars and trucks aren't exactly biodegradable. So we'll have the most prominent energy graveyard with toxic pollutants that will be 100 times larger than any nuclear waste storage. And yet the left is worried about plastic straws. Now, maybe we should reduce plastic straws, but just giving a bit of perspective. Well, Stephen Moore points out that he's all in for mining for America's bountiful natural resources of copper, lead, magnesium and precious metals. But ironically, it's the Greens that want to shut down mines, which is like saying you want food, but you're opposed to farming. If you want one, you're going to have to have the other. Talk about cognitive dissonance. Then the land space is needed for the windmills and solar panels. Bloomberg reports that getting to zero carbon by 2050 would require a land area equal to five South Dakotas to develop enough clean power to run all the electric vehicles, factories and more. In other words, um, those who are calling for a full scale industrialization of America's wilderness and landscape. Not exactly what you think. Liberals are calling for at this point. Now, even uh, many of the most liberal areas of the country are shouting no to green energy in their own backyard. Vermonters are rebelling against unsightly solar panels spoiling their views. According to the Bennington banner, Vermont's utility regulator that rejected permits for two uh, two MW solar farms proposed in Bennington, pointing to aesthetic concerns and current land conservation measures and the town's plan. So great idea as long as it's somewhere else and somebody else is doing it and has to look at it. Meanwhile, a town in Wisconsin is suing state regulators to stop construction of what uh, would be the state's largest solar project, according to the Wisconsin Journal. Even blue Massachusetts residents are fighting green energy projects. Offshore wind farms are delayed off the coast of Cape Cod, where per capita income is nearly the highest in the country because, well, they don't want their ocean view spoiled from the beachfront villas. So do we want it or not? Well, in other words, real nature lovers are finally starting to awaken to the reality that wind and solar aren't so green after all. A nuclear plant takes up um, uh, most a square mile of land. Wind and solar uh, farms require hundreds of thousands of acres. So to provide enough electric power to keep Manhattan lit up at night would require paving over nearly the whole state of Connecticut with windmills and solar farms. Now, the public is starting to ask, how is uh, any of this green? Well, the Green New Deal strategy makes especially no sense, given that by increasing our use of electric burning and reliable natural gas, we're reducing energy prices and cutting carbon emissions and nuclear power to the mix or add it. And we wouldn't um, need to start building wind and solar farms in our foreseeable uh, future forests, deserts and national parks. So what might sound good on its face may not pencil out in real life. And it may be that folks who would benefit by it just don't want it in their backyard. Huh? Well, HSBC, this is on another matter. Uh, Executive Stuart Kirk gave a presentation at an investor conference last week, taking banking um, uh, regulation uh, regulators to task for overbaking the financial risk of climate change. What was he thinking? As punishment for his heresy, the British bank has sent him to a re-education camp. Mr. Kirk is, or at last was, or at least was, the bank's global head of responsible investing, 
So his candid presentation titled Why Investors Need Not Worry About Climate Risk naturally attracted attention. And we understand why banking regulators and businesses that hope to make money off the coming tidal wave of climate regulation might be offended by his truth telling. But he merely said what many in his industry believe but are too timid to say. It's rather costly. Climate change poses a negligible risk to the global economy and bank balance sheets. Oh, and central banks are bankers, rather, are partly to blame for the current economic turmoil because they focus too much on climate change while ignoring far greater, more immediate risks such as inflation. Unsubstantiated, shrill, partisan, self-serving, apocalyptic warnings are always wrong. One of his slides noted he actually had it in print. He highlighted sky is falling quotes from banking uh, potentates such as Mark Carney, the former Bank of England governor, who recently said the damage from climate change will dwarf the current pain from rising prices. Tell that to the working folks dealing with 8% inflation. That's only going to get higher. Well, if climate change poses such an enormous economic threat, Mr. Kirk asked, asked rather, why did assets uh, prices surge as doomsday warnings increased? Either climate risk is negligible, climate risk is already in the prices, or all investors are wrong. He said, if you believe the latter, then you don't believe in markets and shouldn't be regulating them. Well, it goes on from there. They wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal back in May. Uh, But again, uh, for raising such heresy, he was sent to a re-education camp. I'm sure he'll think again about raising such questions. And certainly others in his profession have already been silenced because they don't want to pay the cost of stepping off of or out of the mainstream of acceptable thinking. Hey, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Oh, by the way, I'm going to be traveling to North Carolina and will be working at a conference there for the next several days. So we'll have a variety of things coming up for the next few days here on the Georgine Rice Show. So I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.